The reading is from Mark's Gospel, from the beginning of chapter 12. Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall round it, dug a pit for the winepress, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, They will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this passage of scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvellous in our eyes. Then the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders, looked for a way to arrest him, because they knew he had spoken the parable against them, but they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. There's a bit towards the end of the first Harry Potter book. When Harry is in the infirmary and asks Albus Dumbledore, the head teacher of Hogwarts, why he didn't die when Voldemort, who's the baddie, plot spoiler, if you've been on planet Mars for the last 20 years, why he didn't die when Voldemort killed Harry's parents. I think it's in the third or fourth film or book when you see what happened on that particular night when Voldemort comes and kills Harry's parents. And Dumbledore looks at Harry and says this, Your mother, Lily, died to save you. Love as powerful as your mother's leaves its own mark. Not a scar, no visible sign, but to have been loved so deeply will give us some protection forever. To have been loved so deeply will give us some protection forever. 
Now it's a, a motif, a symbol that is used again and again in so many classic stories, whether it be Harry Potter or whether it be Star Trek, all the classics. The needs of the many outweigh the needs of the one, live long and prosper. And it's there at the heart of the Christian faith. The idea that sacrifice is what real love is all about. That if you love somebody, you will sacrifice yourself for them. It's running right through the Harry Potter novels. It occurs again, again, in so many different stories. It's there at the heart of the Christian faith. It's there at the heart of Christmas. The idea of God giving of himself sacrificially as Jesus dies on the cross, demonstrating his love for us. Paul says in the New Testament that while we were still sinners, while we were far away from God, Christ died for the ungodly, for people like you, people like me. Not because we were good enough, not because we were nice enough, not because we were religious enough, but actually precisely because of the opposite. Because God knows exactly what we're like and loves us so much that he was willing to give of himself. And it's there in that passage that Roger read for us a few moments ago. This passage that occurs in Mark chapter 12. Both Mark and Luke in his gospel place this story in the context of Jesus' final week. He has just entered Jerusalem to the acclaim of the crowds on that first Palm Sunday and the consternation of the authorities, both Roman and Jewish. It's the final decisive week of Jesus' life. It's the days leading up to when he would be crucified on that first Good Friday. Having entered into Jerusalem on that first Palm Sunday with the crowds shouting out, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Everybody thinking this is it. This is the moment when everything changes. This is the moment when Jesus takes control. This is the moment when the Romans are going to get kicked out. This is the moment when the Jewish people are going to be set free. This is the moment when liberation is going to occur, the next day, Jesus goes into the temple courts. And what unfolds next is Jesus just laying down, throwing down a gauntlet to the Jewish authorities. He goes into the temple courts and he's so appalled by what he finds, people trading in pigeons and sheep and then being sold at exorbitant prices and people being charged incredible rates of interest, that Jesus is absolutely furious. He's angry and he starts to overturn the tables of the moneylenders. He kicks over the stalls of the pigeons, the sheep and pigeons and goats everywhere. It's complete carnage. And what Jesus actually does is bring this entire sight to a standstill. This is the very heart of the Jewish nation. The temple courts are a sort of mixture between the city of London and Westminster Abbey. It was where the commercial and religious life collided together. And what Jesus does through his actions is bring the whole thing to a standstill. 
It was a massive site, 35 acres all in total. And he blocks the market, drives out the, the buyers and the money lenders and the sellers. And we're told in chapter 11 and verse 16, he would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. This is the equivalent of the Archbishop of Canterbury walking onto the floor at the centre of uh, the city of London and stopping trading. This is like Bill Hybels or T.D. Jakes or Rick Warren, one of the American megachurch leaders, walking onto the main floor of trading at Wall Street and stopping the American stock market in its tracks. Everything in the nation grinds to a halt because of what Jesus has done. The afternoon sacrifice, and this is the days leading up to Passover, so this would have been a really lucrative time of year, if you like, it's the equivalent of two or three days before Christmas, Jesus walks into a shop, into the equivalent of Jenner's, and says, everybody out, the shop is closed for business. That's what Jesus has done. Everything grinds to a halt, and Jesus will not allow anybody to perform any transactions because he's so horrified. He says, you've made this what should be a, a house of prayer into a den of thieves. But what Jesus has done is challenge the Jewish authorities. What Jesus has done is challenge the Sanhedrin. What Jesus has done is challenge the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. He's laid down, he's thrown down a gauntlet and is basically saying, you are on borrowed time. Your rule, your regime is coming to an end and I'm here to tell you that you have not lived up to the way that God expected people to live. You have not led these people in the way that God expected you to lead them and you are on borrowed time. The clock is ticking. The result, not surprisingly, we're told in verse 18, the chief priests and teachers of the law were furious and began looking for a way to kill him. The next day, the Monday or Tuesday of what we call Holy Week, Jesus comes again into Jerusalem. The Jewish authorities, the chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders ask him, by whose authority are you doing the things that you are doing? And Jesus refuses to tell them. And then after, he tells this story, the parable of the tenants. And it's a very pointed story, where everybody that was listening to Jesus would have known exactly what he was doing and exactly who he was talking about and exactly the point that he was making. It's a story that picks up on several images familiar to the people of Israel. Israel again and again throughout both Old and New Testament was compared with a vineyard. In Isaiah chapter 5, Israel, we're told, is a vineyard. God is the owner and the planter of the vineyard. In Isaiah 5, these words written 800 years before Jesus' birth and life, God expects, we're told, good grapes. He expects the nation of Israel to produce good grapes, but only bitter ones are produced. God hopes that from the people of Israel will come hope and justice and righteousness. 
but what results is simply bloodshed and oppression. On the, one of the huge gates of uh, the temple in Jerusalem, there was a massive picture of a bunch of grapes. And it may even have been that Jesus was telling this story with a backdrop, not of a screen with a vineyard, but actually of this enormous bunch of grapes on a gate behind him. And it's in that setting, perhaps, that Jesus tells this story. And in the story that Jesus tells, the hero is the owner of the vineyard. He tells a story about a vineyard owner who plants it, who builds a wall around the vineyard, who digs a pit, digs a pit for the wine press and builds a watchtower. And then rents the vineyard out to some local farmers. The owner has invested in it, he's made it secure, and he now gives employment to local people. Very important in an agrarian economy. Come harvest time, Jesus says the owner of the vineyard wants a return on his investment. And so he sends a servant to, quite rightly and quite justly, collect his share of the profits. But surprisingly and shockingly, the servant that he sends is not welcomed. He gets beaten up. So what does the owner of the vineyard do? He sends a second servant. He gets beaten up. And even more significantly, in Mark 12 and verse 4, Jesus says, And they treated him shamefully. They treated him shamefully. Now, it's difficult for those of us in the West, perhaps to understand how much honour is a thing of huge importance in the Middle East. We still hear occasionally references to so-called honour killings. But in Middle Eastern culture, honour is everything. Hospitality comes a close second, but honour is really, really important. So for Jesus to say, he sends one servant and he gets beaten up, was, shockingly, was shocking enough. To say, Jesus, that the vineyard owner sends a second servant and he gets beaten up as well, but they treat him shamefully... Well, the people who were listening to Jesus tell this story in Jerusalem would have gasped because nobody treated anybody else shamefully. Jesus makes that point deliberately. The tenants of the vineyard just don't care what the owner thinks. And so they treat the second servant shamefully. The owner sends a third servant in the story. But the third servant, Jesus says, doesn't just get beaten up. They kill him. Still, the owner sends servants. There's almost a sort of, we were singing earlier about the reckless love of God. And the owner of the vineyard in the story is God. And he sends servant after servant after servant after servant. It's reckless, it's prodigious, it's prodigal, it's extravagant. Servant after servant, who presumably after the first two or three are not queuing up for this job. They're not saying, please, please send me. They're going, please, please send him. Because each one either gets beaten up or they get killed. 
He sends servant after servant after servant after servant. And the result is one of two things. Either they get beaten up or they get killed. It's a reference perhaps again to the prophets being sent. Again and again and again in what we call the Old Testament. As God sends servants to tell his people to come back. Come home. Start living the life the way in which you were always meant to live. Life on my terms. And then the climax of the story occurs. Now, in contrast to a Western story, in a Western story, the way in which you and I tell stories, the climax moves towards the end. Influenced by what we call the Enlightenment and rationalism, you have the story unravelling, 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 and then the climax comes right at the end. In a Middle Eastern story, this is called ring composition. That's the technical name. And the climax occurs here in the middle of the story. Because in the middle of the story, what happens next is the high point. The owner, Jesus says, has one person left to send. His son, whom he loved. Verse 6. Now, the owner of the vineyard would have been perfectly entitled to have contacted the authorities, to have asked them to send the equivalent of a SWAT team or or armed response unit or a, a, a group of soldiers to march to the vineyard, arrest the tenants and to seek justice for what's happened to his servants. But the owner of the vineyard doesn't do that. Even though he's perfectly entitled to do that, even though actually culture, because his honour has been besmirched, everybody listening to the story would have thought, well, when's the guy going to get real? Surely he's got to make sure that his honour is settled and, and, and have justice seen to be done. The owner of the vineyard doesn't do that. The owner of the vineyard sends the one servant that he has left. And the one servant that he has left is his son. Culturally, in fact, the owner is actually honour-bound to ask for justice. His servants have been killed or beaten up. That was a direct insult to him. In beating up and killing the servants, they were literally, metaphorically, figuratively putting two or one fingers up at the owner of the vineyard. We don't care what you think. We're going to do our own thing. We're going to live life in this vineyard on our terms because we have possession of the vineyard. Who cares what anybody else thinks? Interestingly in the story, no anger is mentioned. There was a writer and theologian called Kenneth Bailey who died uh, a few months ago, an expert on Middle Eastern culture. And he says that the owner displays something in the Greek language which is called macrothemia. Macrothemia is a rich Greek word with no single English equivalent. It's a sort of combination of patience, long-suffering, risk-taking, compassion and self-emptying. We need five English words to describe this one Greek word. In Arabic, the word is halim. 
one word, and it's this curious mixture. It describes the heart of someone who can take revenge on his enemy, but chooses not to do so. Literally, it means to put your anger far away. But it's so much more than that. There's an example of it in what we call the Old Testament in 1 Samuel chapter 26, where David has the chance to kill King Saul, who's been pursuing him, uh, to kill him. And uh, David creeps into Saul's camp with two of his men and finds himself standing over the body of the king. And David's mates say, go on, David, kill him, kill him. And then it'll all come to an end, kill him. He's after you, it's either, it's either you or him, it's, it's kill or be killed. You're standing over him, he's asleep, you can just kill him. And all this will come to an end. And David says, I can't kill him. Because even though the king, Saul, is trying to kill me, I cannot lift a hand against the Lord's anointed. And so even though the two blokes with him have sort of got swords drawn and they want to kill the king, David says, no, we cannot kill the king because the king is the Lord's anointed. And David leaves the camp. In the next chapter, there's another example where David is hiding in a cave and it's almost comical. King Saul comes in and um, it puts it very sort of euphemistically. In one version of the Bible, it says he came in to cover his feet. He was going to the toilet. And he, he, he crouches down at the back of this cave, not, not realising that, that David is just behind him. And while he's doing what he's doing, David just cuts off a piece of his, of his cloak. The king finishes doing what he's doing, goes back out, back down the valley. And only when he's down in the valley does, does David shout to the king and hold up a piece of the king's cloak and say to Saul, Saul, I could have killed you. But again, for a second time, I chose not to. David puts his anger far away. And he demonstrates this mixture of compassion and risk-taking, patience and self-emptying and long-suffering. The owner of the vineyard, his response is not one of vengeful anger, even though retaliation was expected and, by culture, required. His response was to send his son, whom he loved. And Jesus says, the owner of the vineyard says, I'm sending my son because they'll respect my son. Literally what Jesus says is they will feel shame in his presence. That when my son walks into the vineyard, the tenants of this vineyard will go, oh, what have we done? What have we done? And they'll suddenly realise the enormity of what's at stake. They will repent of what they've been doing. They'll say sorry. They will give themselves up to the authorities. They will feel shame in his presence. They will respect my son. It is the act of an honourable man who expects the tenants 
to behave honourably. It's a surprising and vulnerable response as he sends his son alone and unarmed. Servant after servant have been beaten up. Servant after servant has been killed. But he doesn't send his son with an armed guard, probably because all his servants are either dead or beaten up. But he sends his son alone, vulnerable and unarmed. It's a response of grace. It's a response of undeserved love. It's a response where the owner of the vineyard doesn't throw his weight around as he was entitled to, but rather simply sends his son in vulnerability. There's nothing sadder than a leader who throws his weight around just to let other people know that he's in charge. There's nothing sadder or more tragic as we're seeing even now in Zimbabwe with a leader who is clinging on to power. When they uh, finished the first set of worship songs, two or three of the worship band um, showed me uh, the latest BBC news bulletin that just came on their phones uh, just before I stood up to speak that says, President Mugabe has gone on national television saying that he is going to carry on as president. So even though his party met this morning and voted him out of office as the leader of that particular party because that party realises that if they're going to stay in power, they need a new leader as well as the country. 93-year-old President Mugabe is so frightened and so desperate to cling on to power that even as we speak at three minutes to eight, he is saying, I will not step down as the president of Zimbabwe. His response contrasts with the true story of King Hussein of Jordan that I came across this week. And it's a remarkable story, a story that's been verified by MI5 and the CIA of what actually happened to King Hussein of Jordan in the early 1980s. King Hussein was informed that 75 army officers were meeting in a nearby army compound and plotting a military coup against him and the royal family. Very similar situation to that which has occurred in Zimbabwe. The security services of the king asked permission to send an armed response unit to arrest, to surround the army compound, and if they could take them alive and arrest them, but if not, to kill the 75 members of the military of the army who were plotting against the king. King Hussein apparently paused and then simply asked for a helicopter. And he requested that the helicopter fly him and him alone with just him and the pilot in the helicopter to the army compound. When they got to the army compound, King Hussein of Jordan requested the pilot to land on the roof of the main office block where the plotters were. And as he got out of the helicopter, he turned to the pilot and simply said these words, if you hear gunfire, take off. 
don't come looking for me. The helicopter took off and King Hussein of Jordan went down into the office block. He opened the door and walked into a room where the 75 army officers who were plotting against him and the government were meeting. They were a bit surprised to see him. He walked in and said these words. Gentlemen, a remarkable poise and maturity. Gentlemen, it has come to my attention that you are meeting tonight to finalise your plans to overthrow the government, take over the country and install a military dictator. If you do this, the army will break apart and the country will be plunged into civil war. Tens of thousands of innocent people will die. There is no need for this. Here I am. Kill me and proceed. That way, only one man will die. Remarkable dignity. Remarkable leadership putting the needs of his country before his own personal position as the king. Talk about gutsy grace. How do you think the plotters responded? They all rushed towards the king, fell on their knees, kissed his hands, kissed his feet, and pledged undying loyalty to the King Hussein of Jordan. Now in the story that Jesus told, the tenants react differently to the arrival of the son. The vineyard owner's decision to send his son is met with violence and dishonour. Jesus tells this story, looks at the chief priests, the teachers of the law, the Sanhedrin, the elders, and said they killed the vineyard owner's son. And then they threw him out of the vineyard. And that was a, just an, a little extra twist. You see, they didn't want the dead body of the son to be on the vineyard ground, because if the dead body of the son was on the ground of the vineyard, then that meant the vineyard was impure and they couldn't have sold the grapes. And with a final twist, Jesus is saying, you see in that story, the tenants have got their priorities wrong. They're trying to keep the purity laws and ignoring the fact that they've just committed murder. And Jesus, looking at the chief priests, looking at the teachers of the law, looking at the elders and the Sanhedrin, the religious establishment of Israel says, so what will the owner of the vineyard then do? And he quotes Psalm 118 quite deliberately. The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. And what Jesus is doing is foretelling his own death just a few days later. The son will be killed. The son that was sent by the owner will die. 
the servants who've been looking after, the tenants who've been looking after the vineyard. And remember, Israel is the vineyard. The tenants will kill the son. But the owner of the vineyard will come. And the owner of the vineyard will come and he will throw out the people who've killed his son. And then he will get rid of the tenants and judgment will come. Judgment will come. And we're told again that the chief priests and the teachers of the law were furious and looked for a way to kill him. But they were afraid of the crowd. And so they backed off. And in this remarkably rich story, Jesus foretells and predicts his own death. But he also challenges every single one of us who refuse to give in to regime change. Because that is what is involved in becoming a Christian. That's what's involved in, in saying, I don't know best for my life. That's what's involved in saying, I'm willing to give control of my life over to Jesus. I'm willing to give control of my life over and back to God because I realise that he loves me so much that he is willing to give of his own son who died for me with reckless love. Grace-filled, gutsy love. And the question for you and for me this evening is very simply, are, willing, are we willing to allow Jesus to be in charge of our lives? Do we, like the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders in the Sanhedrin, do we want to metaphorically, like the tenants in the vineyard, want to stick two fingers or one finger up at God and say, we know best. We know best for how we're going to live our lives. We know how things really should happen. We know how we want things to turn out and we know best. Or are we willing to turn over control of our life to God? Recognising that he sent his only son and that he asks that we live life on his terms and accept the gift of his son dying in our place, paying the penalty for our sins, being sacrificed so that we might be forgiven, so that we might be brought home in the same way that God sent prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet saying to the people of Israel, come back to me, come home. I've loved you with an everlasting love. Jesus says to you and to me this evening, will you come back to me? Will you come home to me? I've loved you with an everlasting love. And if you doubt it, then look at the cross. Look at the decisive act of human history. Where I became one of you. Lived a fully human life. And died a human death in your place. So that you can know life even through death. And I'll prove it to you by raising my son again from the dead.